to the AKC podcast, an audio resource for staff at King's College London following the Associateship of King's College programme. The AKC is an inclusive, research-led programme of lectures which explores diverse religious and cultural perspectives. For more information, visit kcl.ac.uk forward slash AKC. Handouts, presentation slides and further reading links for this lecture are available on the AKC Keats area. Thank you, Claire, very much indeed, and thank you all for being here in uh, uh, difficult circumstances. There's been a link between Westminster Abbey and King's um, at least since Eric Abbott was our dean uh, back in the 60s, um, having been your dean before that. Um, so uh, many of us who've been canon theologians, Nick Sagowski, Vernon White, um, and now me, we've been really thrilled to have honorary posts in the department here, um, as well as to be near neighbors. So it's a great pleasure. Um, to speak to you for this final lecture in your term and indeed academic year. As Claire said, rather than speak um, in the abstract about the theme, um, worship, memory and identity, which is a pretty vast um, collection of concepts, um, I'm going to root what I have to say in a sort of virtual tour of Westminster Abbey, which I hope might be both effective um, and more interesting for you than uh, were I to otherwise just waffle on. So we'll consider various themes raised by the building, by its life and its history. So Westminster is a kind of tablet on which much has been written, erased and rewritten. We know that the Romans settled on Thorny Island as early as the beginning of the third century, possibly earlier. Um, and there's clear archaeological evidence not just of existence, but of settled existence on this site. The archaeological evidence we have of this is particularly interesting. It's an early 4th century Roman sarcophagus, which was discovered buried on the north green of the abbey um, in the 19th century. It's an interesting sarcophagus. Why? Because it's been reused. Um, it was certainly a pagan sarcophagus, but now there's a Christian cross chiselled um, into the top of it. So that is the only archaeological evidence that we have of settled Christian existence um, before the 10th century. It's currently on display in our um, Diamond Jubilee galleries if you want to come and have a look. But as ever, when discussing what is essentially religious identity, it is coloured by a series of rather deep and knotty cultural memories. So legend is at least as important as history. One account tells of the destruction of a Roman temple of Apollo by an earthquake, and in its place the local king, so the legend goes, built the first church in the year 170, quite early you might think. What we do know is that early in the 7th century, Sebut, the son of a Saxon king of Essex, was converted by St. Melitus, the first bishop of London, and the story continues, he refounded this late 2nd century church. Now, all of this chimes rather beautifully with other popular mythological accounts of the conversion to Christianity of pagan rulers elsewhere in what became Europe. In terms of formal history, there may have been a smaller minster on this site by the end of the 8th century, but if so, we think this was destroyed in the Danish raids of 835. But a key period in the life of Westminster was, without doubt, the period 957 to 975, where there was a major religious renewal under King Edgar. 
It was under him that the Kingdom of England was formally established, and monastic life undoubtedly begins at Westminster. St Dunstan founded a monastery in Glastonbury in the West Country, which many of you will know either because of the festival or because of the pilgrimage to that site. Um, and when St Dunstan was a Bishop of London, or possibly Archbishop of Canterbury, he founded or refounded Westminster Abbey as a Benedictine monastery uh, in the 960s or 970. So our strapline is Westminster Abbey, faith at the heart of the nation since 960. We don't mention the previous 800 years. Um, there is now archaeological evidence of this church, of St Dunstan's church. If any of you have been to Westminster in the last few years, to the Abbey, uh, you may have visited our Solarium Cafe, uh, which is in the old monastic cellar. It was whilst we were excavating for that that we found an a piece of evidence of a, a chapel built in the time of St Dunstan, which was part of this church. But what clinched the major place in the nation's moral, political and spiritual psyche was King Edward the Confessor's desire to rebuild, to build a great minster church here opposite his palace of Westminster. You can see there the initial palace of Westminster just at the top, sort of, as it were, uh, easternmost corner, the large building. Um, that's the palace of Westminster, now known colloquially as the Houses of Parliament, covered in ghastly scaffolding. Um, and here we have a great minster church, and St. Edward greatly enriched the monastery. Now, St. Edward had been crowned at Winchester on Easter Day 1043, but in consolidating his rule, he established his court in London. So this building, the site of Westminster Abbey, has been a pole of orientation for London ever since then. I'm going to briefly explore that in two ways. First, in terms of the geographical reality of London at the time, and indeed since, and its emerging importance in English life. Second, and related of course, its metaphysical place in national and ecclesial consciousness and memory as somewhere which gathers people and things and which acts as a locus for worship and transformation. So first, geography. Here you have a plan of London in about 1300. We don't think it was much changed um, from 300 years before that, apart from lots of the buildings which are, are, are notated on here, obviously didn't exist at the time. What you can see is Westminster down here and St Paul's Cathedral and its associated city churches up there. So there's a real sense that this site really unveils something of the deep structure of London. Because when Edward the Confessor built his minster here in the west, London already had a great minster in the east, its Cathedral Church of St Paul. Now, by dedicating the new Westminster to St Peter, with St Peter's Church, not St Edward's Church, in dedicating the new Westminster St Peter, St Peter, Edward the Confessor poised his capital and its people between the two great founding apostles of the church, Peter and Paul and place the life of London and therefore of England under the light of that church's teaching and wisdom. This is almost certainly a conscious attempt to portray this capital as a kind of new Rome, a kind of new Rome, a new Constantinople. It would be under the twin lights of St Peter and St Paul. This was to be no secular city, an anachronistic phrase in any sense for this period of history, 
but rather a community shaped by Christian faith, hope, and love. And the Abbey's continued presence at the heart of our city is, if you like, a twitch upon London's thread, tugging it back to its foundation. Now, Rome was, of course, the best-known city under the twin lights of Peter and Paul, and it was to Rome that Edward had promised to go on pilgrimage earlier in his life. After the death of King Canute's son in 1042, Edward seized the throne, and the Pope dispensed him from that vow to go on pilgrimage as long as he built this great church in honour of St Peter. Peter and Paul, the great litmus test of the faith, the litmus test, if you like, of a truly Christian world city, and especially one which increasingly wanted to claim a kind of national or even increasingly universal jurisdiction. This city, if you like, at its deepest structure, was poised for a Christian polity. Edward the Confessor died childless, his throne famously passing to his brother-in-law, Harold, overthrown by William the Conqueror, who was crowned in Westminster Abbey on Christmas Day, 1066. However, St Edward was canonised in 1161 by Pope Alexander III, Edward's influence and spirit thus remaining as influential in death as it had been in life. Now, the picture behind me, many of you will recognise from the Wilton Diptych in the National Gallery. And you have here St Edward in the middle, St Edmund of East Anglia, not to be confused with St Edward, who's holding one of the arrows which martyred him, and St John the Baptist on the right. At their feet, you can just about glimpse the image of Richard II, who, of course, he came to the throne when he was a very, very, very young man and also greatly enriched the Abbey and the Westminster site. But it was this site, with St Peter and Paul framing the city, with this new saint, St Edward, offering a vernacular call to holiness, an English call to holiness, which somehow neither apostle could really keep up with. But there's that second sense beyond the Abbey's geographical dedication to St. Peter and its placing in the city and its association with St. Edward, in which this place is a metaphysical pole of identity too. And I want now to whiz us right forward in time and to take an example from recent architectural history, which will help us understand what this building is saying in particular about the Christian faith and, as it's developed, about the role of the Church of England in that. Now, this isn't Westminster Abbey. <laughs> when you enter the great cathedral of Chartres in France, uh, this is Chartres, or even go to York Minster via the Great West Door, there is no question whose world you are entering. Chartres, framed by the image above the door of Christ in majesty, of scenes from the life of Our Lady, of other saints, and even the signs of the Zodiac, remind us that in entering consecrated ground, we're entering a cosmic reality. In fact, particularly when entering for liturgy, we're in some sense entering the life of heaven. At Westminster Abbey, the Great West Door is framed not by these figures, in fact, there was no great medieval facade at the time. The towers you now see were built by Nicholas Hawksmoor. So our Great West Door is not framed by these figures, but rather it is surmounted by statues of modern martyrs, martyrs of the 20th century. You can see them up there above the Great West Door. 
This is as much a statement about the universality of the church, the single proclamation of Christian witness, as it is about, happily, the multicultural reality of London today. So in entering this church, as entering any space whose primary function is to perform liturgy, worship, you are entering heaven. And these are the saints who teach us, who welcome us, who challenge us, who inspire us. These are figures who tell us that they are the church. And these are the figures who welcome into Westminster Abbey an extremely diverse series of people, communions, and backgrounds. Now, the ten above our west door, occupying what could be mistaken for niche homes of medieval images, include victims for the struggle for human rights in North and South America, victims of the Nazi and Soviet persecutions in Europe, of persecution and dictatorial rule in Africa, of fanaticism in India, of brutality in World War II in Asia, and of the Cultural Revolution in China. Unveiled in July 1998, these represent one of the most recent layers of the Abbey in terms of architectural and artistic history, but they relate, they take us back, right to the very deepest and most primary layer of the Christian faith. It was Tertullian who said in the second century, uh, in a very well-loved phrase, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. But it was Pope St. John Paul II who popularized that in the 20th century. Incidentally, there has been already, we think, more Christian persecution in the 21st century, even more in the 21st century than in the whole of the 20th century put together. The, the statistics are staggering. So these statues are saying something about the contemporary life of the church as well as these individual martyrs themselves. John Paul II, who loved that phrase of Tertullian from the second century, that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, wrote in 1994, the most convincing form of ecumenism is the ecumenism of the saints and martyrs. The communion sanctorum speaks louder than the things which divide us. Now, when the Queen came as the first witness to the unveiling of these great statues, this cloud of witnesses, she was accompanied by an extraordinary variety of other Christian witnesses. Archbishops of Canterbury and Westminster, of course, but also a metropolitan from St. Petersburg, the Archbishop of Uganda, the Chairman of the Council of the Evangelical Church of Germany. We can be fairly sure that this particular group of Christian witnesses hasn't gathered in prayer together before or since. But what enabled this was a very deep rooting in a common identity, in the fundamentals of the faith occasioned by these statues. Here was memory, worship, and identity in quite focused forms. Individuals, but representative individuals. Just at random here, you can see on the far left, St. Maximilian Kolbe, the priest martyr of Auschwitz. Two along, um, Archbishop Janini Lewum, killed um, by Idi Amin in Uganda. Next to him, St. Elizabeth of Russia. Um, further along, Martin Luther King. I could go on. Bonhoeffer. At the service um, for these 20th century martyrs, a 5th century chant was sung, the Te Deum Laudamus, peeling back another layer of history, rooting us yet deeper in Christian identity, including, interestingly, the Abbey's own monastic identity. The monks of Westminster would have recognised that chant, which was sung 
Te martyrum candidatus laudat exercitus, the noble army of martyrs praise you, sang the Abbey Choir in that plain chant mode which our monks of the Middle Ages would have recognised. Now, when Pope Benedict came to England for his um, state visit in 2010, it was noticing the statue of Dietrich Bonhoeffer which caused him to stop. If any of you have seen the footage of that visit, as he's accompanied in by the Dean of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he stops uh, and points out Bonhoeffer. These are people who connect cultures and Christian communions um, in ways which ecumenical documents or agreed statements don't quite. So these statues are a great testimony to a common identity. Just by way of aside, it's worth stepping back to think about what liturgy can enable, what worship can enable. Worship in the Christian tradition is always simply worship for God's sake. That is to say, there is no other point to worship. It's not a utilitarian thing apart from the giving glory to God. However, the liturgy is almost always shot through with deep symbolic language which can resonate on all sorts of levels. I talked a minute ago about the plain song sung um, praising the martyrs. A few years ago, Westminster Abbey Choir was invited to Rome to sing for Pope Benedict as a direct result of him coming um, to the Abbey in 2010. And during that mass, this was the mass for the Feast of St. Peter and St. Paul in Rome, um, celebrated by the Pope, an Anglican choir was singing at its heart. Now, what's going on in terms of worship and identity there? Well, as Pope Benedict gave Holy Communion, an Anglican choir sang the recusant William Byrd's setting of the text Ave Verum Corpus Natum, a Eucharistic hymn by St. Thomas Aquinas, written by an English Catholic recusant composer for use in house worship. How is history healed by those moments? An Anglican choir at a papal mass singing a piece of music in Latin written by an English recusant composer. There are all sorts of resonances here about memory, identity and worship which somehow heal the wounds of the past. But let's go back to the martyrs of the 20th century. These beautiful statues by Neil Simmons, Andrew Tanzer, Tim Crawley and John Roberts are sort of magnets. They're witnesses in a way that the building itself is also a witness. Just in front of them is another example about, of how the Abbey relates to, if you like, the deep structure of London, the deep cultural structure. This is the 1996 memorial to all innocent victims. It's a stone of sheer marble outside the Great West Door. Um, it is, if you like, outside the camp. There's a tradition that Jesus being, being crucified on Golgotha was crucified outside the city. So this stone, to all innocent victims of whatever culture, faith, identity, is outside the camp. And the unveiling of this stone was attended by victims of the Ugandan and Armenian genocides, of the Bosnian conflicts, victims of, Berlin, of Bernese and um, Stalinist purges, a teacher from Dunblane Primary School, and as with the dedication of the, of the statues of the 20th century martyrs, at the dedication of this stone, there was a huge artistic response. Uh, new works by Dylan Thomas, by the composer Christoph Penderecki, by the um, composer Bernstein, by Pablo Casals. Um, these artistic offerings of liturgy offer yet another layer of interpretation, a retelling, a telling of 
a series of historical stories which otherwise couldn't be uttered. But going inside the building, that sense of deep structure of identity and memory continues. And walking through the nave of Westminster Abbey, if any of you have been, you can't help be struck by the fact that you're somehow not alone. There are over 3,300 people buried or memorialised in that great building. The grave of the unknown warrior, you can see the warrior here um, just after his burial, um, offers huge complexity. Memories and memorialization here is a deeply knotted and potentially contradictory thing because the blood-red poppies which now surround the grave of the unknown warrior are not just about the dead who lie in Flanders Field or in the graveyards of the conflicts of 1914. This is, we are told, the building where Richard II prayed before the Peasants' Revolt, where Henry V gave thanks after the Battle of Agincourt, and where Elizabeth I came after the sinking of the Armada. So for better or for worse, the kind of comfortable remembrance that people rejoice in so often, you know the phrases, uh, laid down their lives so that others might live, gave their lives so that tyranny couldn't triumph, they contextualise those rather comfortable nationalistic remembrances by other remembrances, some not so noble, some perhaps not even moral. But perhaps that is the genius of this site. And it's also the genius of David Lloyd George, the Prime Minister at the time of the burial here, in persuading George V to agree to this focus of so many hundreds of thousands of bereaved. The inscription on the grave of the unknown warrior, which you almost literally trip up over as you come in to the building, is that this unknown man, we don't know his name, his rank, his number, we don't know whether he was a Brit or whether he was a soldier of the empire, the inscription says that he's buried amongst the kings. So no matter what the context of war or the precise justification for it or explanation of it, that simple inscription strips us back to something quite fundamentally Christian about personhood. He lies amongst the kings. This is someone who shares in the royal priesthood of those who believe in Christ. And that helps us to make a sense of what is going on in any burial in this Christian building, that in some ways, Christians don't know where their debts begin and end. We don't know quite to whom we are responsible. All of these people who are buried or memorialised here somehow belong. That's a contemporary photograph of the grave of the unknown warrior. This grave very quickly became a focus of pilgrimage, gathering the memories of country racked with grief after the loss of a generation in World War I. Two and a half years after the dedication of the stone, Lady Elizabeth Bowes Lyon left her wedding bouquet at the grave in memory of her brother Fergus, who was killed in action at the age of 26, thus inaugurating a tradition of all royal brides sending their bouquets to be here. This also uh, says something to us about memory, the memory of a nation, the identity of a nation, the relationship between a nation and its monarchs. But the grave itself is a piece of art. In fact, it's a kind of icon. The coffin, which you can't see, obviously, is made of English oak. It was felled at Hampton Court, the great Tudor palace. It rests in French soil brought from the front, and the marble slab which you can see surmounting it is Belgian. The warrior's coffin 
has a crusader's sword strapped to the lid, adding a further dimension to the burial and certainly to identity. Is this a classical Christian warrior engaged in a struggle which has cosmic resonance beyond the straightforward morality or otherwise of warfare? Are we supposed to read this burial as a reference to knightly valour in a romanticised turn towards a poetic, courtly or mythological past? This is an icon with complex layers. The site of battle has been brought into the place of peace. The laying down of a life through the brutalised slaughter of modern warfare is equated with a duty to God. Justice and freedom are described as a sacred cause. So this inscription, written by the then Dean of Westminster, Herbert Ryle, is perhaps supposed to give maximal traction to Christian national remembrance. And of course, it is that sense of national remembrance for which the Abbey is perhaps best known uh, in contemporary uh, days now. It takes the implicit tragedy of a death and makes it an offering, which is, of course, a fundamental theme of Christian worship. Life laid down, life restored. It's a pattern you see in Christian theology in Jesus par excellence. But whilst you may be familiar with this grave um, in images surrounding Remembrance Tide, every time an overseas head of state makes a formal visit to Her Majesty the Queen, they come to this grave to lay a wreath and to pray for peace. So here, art and memory come together to heal conflict. At the centenary of the end of the First World War in November 2018, it was here that the Queen and the President of Germany shook hands and watched together as flowers were laid. We could say much more about, about the warrior, but we must move on. As you walk under the screen, you enter the choir, the daily heartbeat, if you like, of worshipping life. Here, half the monks of Westminster died of the Black Death in 1348. But it is on this site that their structure of psalmody, of praise and prayer, of lament, would have been heard. And it's that daily common life which is, I think, the most moving link which holds together those themes of memory, identity and worship. Every day, since at least 960, with the exception of a very short period during the English Civil War, daily prayer has been offered on this site. For me, the choir is the most moving part of the building precisely because of those amazing arches that you can see, which have provided an echo and an architectural context to all of this searching for God. Christians think of worship as participation, a participation in that which is eternally celebrated in the full presence of God. Many of you will be familiar with a sort of platonic ideal that what is going on on earth is somehow a mirror, a, a, a rather muddied mirror, but a mirror anyway, of what's going on in other realms. Well, of course, a Christian theology of worship uh, is deeply platonic. There's a participation going on in the worship of heaven on this site. Now, although there is little in this area by way of explicit memorial or burial, it's here at the site of daily worship, of the rhythmical chanting of psalm and gospel, that our themes collide perhaps most creatively. Once you've passed through the choir, on entering the Sacrarium, we call the sanctuary the Sacrarium, you come face to face with one of the Abbey's most extraordinary treasures, uh, and that is the Cosmati pavement that you can see laid here in front of the altar. This is um, 
an integral part of Henry III's church dedicated in October 1269. The stones were brought from Rome in 1269 by Richard Ware, the abbot of Westminster, and we know that Henry III owed him the then princely sum of 50 pounds for this. Now, Ware had probably been in Rome to have his election as abbot confirmed by the Pope. That's probably why you see this very Italianate pavement at the heart of what is essentially uh, an Anglo-French Gothic building. It's really out of place. And the fact that it's out of place takes us right back again to questions of identity. Here there are about 30,000 pieces of Cosmati work of marble, of stone and glass, uh, which um, were also drawn uh, from recycled material. <laughs> this is early pagan material, opus sectile, taken from the ruined temples of Sicily um, and southern Italy. Uh, just one notable example, the three great roundels of Egyptian porphyry you can see in front of the altar. Well, we know that the porphyry mines of ancient Egypt dried up in about 50 BC. So these are stones with their own kind of history, pointing to other um, identities. The lapis lazuli, which provides the blue of the pavement, uh, is more costly than its equivalent weight in gold. So we're looking at an artistic offering of the most extraordinary richness. Why? First, of course, it's the site of the liturgy. It's the site of worship. It is a rather beautiful carpet for heaven. But it's also an astrological map of the universe, with the earth, as they thought, at the very centre, containing the four elements of fire, air, water, and earth. But it's also an example, reaching back to the initial founding of those two minsters of Peter and Paul, of Westminster's extraordinary Romanitas. Cosmati is a deeply disruptive element in any Gothic context. And the Westminster context, in the mind of some art historians, helps to visually and cerebrally celebrate and confirm the status of the Abbey as a special daughter of Rome. Remember, this is the Church of St. Peter. Long before we were a royal peculiar, that is to say the sovereign now appoints the dean and the canons, we were a papal peculiar, with the abbot of Westminster answerable only to the Pope in Rome. Now, Henry III, who reigned from 1216 to 1272, rebuilt this church and was in some ways obsessed with this project. Henry had been crowned at Gloucester um, because of the presence of his enemies around Westminster. And he had a great devotion to St. Edward the Confessor, the king who initially built his palace uh, opposite the abbey and greatly enriched the church. One key to the richness of this pavement and why it matters is Henry III's personal piety. One monastic chronicler of the time tells the story of how St. Louis, the King of France, pressed on Henry the need to listen to decent sermons at Mass. Henry III, we know, we're told, brushed aside this advice uh, and said that actually he went to Mass to meet our Lord, not to think about him. This remark is very revealing. Henry wasn't a great fan of sermons. This part of the Abbey the shrine behind the high altar and the pavement in front of it isn't about learning about the Christian faith. It's about entering into communion with St. Edward and the life of heaven. 
This is the heart of Henry's rebuilding. One inscription in the Abbey describes Henry as the friend of St. Edward the Confessor. So these changes thrust the Abbey dramatically to the fore and engage it in a kind of association with the English royal family um, in a way which becomes very intense over the forthcoming period. Because from Henry III onwards, kings wanted to be buried around St. Edward. Now, before we move on from the pavement, I want to tell you one other really, I think, very interesting thing about this site. You see the central round in the middle, which I said a moment ago represents the earth with its elements of um, fire, water, etc. That also marks the point where the body of St. Edward had been buried in the church prior to this one. It's on that spot that William, Duke of Normandy, insisted that his coronation chair was placed on Christmas Day, 1066. The conqueror wanted to be crowned on the grave, right on the grave of St. Edward. And it's that spot which is marked by the roundel here. And it's on that spot that every king or queen of England, bar two, has been crowned ever since, including our current queen. So this, again, is a site rich in memory and identity. We're beginning to glimpse the fullness of this building and indeed of the building as a theater for the national realm. And that's of course as much about cohesion as it is identity. And there's an interesting piece of counter history about cohesion, which is linked to the pavement um, and this part of the building. In April 1258, a group of armed magnates marched into Westminster Hall demanding reform of the realm. Even though armed conflict, including four years' civil war, had ceased in 1267, the English political situation was deeply unstable. And for part of that time, the king was himself subject to a council of barons. Now, the abbey, architecturally and through its art, formed a part of the healing of national identity with the translation of St. Edward's Shrine from its spot um, in front of the altar to the shrine um, behind it. And to this day, if you go into the abbey, there's a series of uh, coats of arms in the uh, choir aisles, which are the arms of the barons who gave money for this bit of the building. Now, is this just a donation? Is it like McDonald's putting their, um, their emblem on something when they give money for it? Not really. Because this building, this project, is about national healing at this point in the 13th century. The king designed, I was going to say designs the building, he, he has the schema designed for him, and the barons give lots of money. And if you give money, you get to put your coat of arms there. So in a sense, whilst the Cosmati pavement emphasizes judgment, and its patterns about the end of the world are, emble are emblemized here in artistic terms. Um, it's also telling us about how all are subject to that judgment. Interestingly, given Westminster's royal connections, the Council of Barons which governed England for this part of history didn't cut funding for the building project, they increased it. Because through their funding of this extraordinary piece of art, they were helping to prize it away from a narrow identity linked only in regal autocracy and to make it a home for English people. But I just want to give the last word in this section to Henry III himself. At court in 1269, the Bishop of St. David's issued an indulgence for those who went to pray at the shrine of St. Edward, but only if they prayed for the estate of the king and for the peace 
of the realm. So Henry had sort of learnt his lesson. And we know from the archaeological evidence of the shrine itself behind the altar that literally millions of feet trampled across uh, this pavement uh, in the subsequent centuries. I said a moment ago that Henry III wanted to be buried near St. Edward. And if you enter the church now, you see not only Henry III, but also Henry V, the great victor of Agincourt, Richard II, who built the nave, all clustered around St. Edward. There are other groups of burials, which I just want to talk about briefly. In the way that Edward gathers kings, Purcell gathers musicians. Henry Purcell was organist uh, in Westminster Abbey um, in the late 17th century. And of course, in addition to being a composer for the church, he was also a composer for the theatre and wrote lots of rather wonderful bawdy songs. Uh, so there's a crossover here between sacred and profane, which um, subsequent generations might have been more reticent about. But the burial of these great figures of national life and the way in which they gather others around them, for example, around Purcell, there are memorials to Britton, Vaughan Williams, Croft, John Blow, Purcell's teacher. Um, these gatherings of extraordinary groups of people tell us something about the vocation of the building, about what our worship does, and about what we're saying about who is welcome here. And that links us back to the martyrs. Two examples. Firstly, we commission a lot of new music for our worship today. That's part of our vocation. But any of you who saw last Monday's Commonwealth Day service on the television will know that for particular occasions it gets much more lively than that. What does it mean for Alexandra Burke and Craig David to perform in Westminster Abbey at a national occasion alongside Westminster Abbey Choir singing music by people like this? It may seem to you a strange context, but I think actually it's the context which makes sense of all that. This is, in its own way, pushing boundaries and making statements about precisely the capacious welcome of the Christian faith, which goes beyond cultures and beyond contexts. In the same way that Purcell gathers musicians, Newton gathers scientists. And you can see here at the front on the, um, on, on the front of the memorial, um, some of Newton's interests and achievements, including the solar system, which goes as far as he thought. I think it's Saturn it goes up to. Um, it's a monument by Michael Reisbrack, who was the best sculptor of his age. And around Newton are gathered people like Faraday, Clark Maxwell, Darwin, who was buried here in 1882. It's a great source of pride to my colleagues on the Dean and Chapter that our forebears um, were foresighted enough at that point in the 19th century to say that there is no fundamental conflict between science and religion. It was at the insistence of the Dean and Chapter and the Royal Society uh, that Darwin be buried here, and we are deeply proud to have him. Stephen Hawking, uh, whose ashes were buried here in 2018, also had, of course, a very ambiguous relationship with any kind of religious faith. Um, when my um, friend John Hall, who was Dean of Westminster until recently, was asked on the t t television about the appropriateness or otherwise of burying Stephen Hawking in the Abbey, uh, the interviewer said, well, Hawking didn't believe in God, to which John replied, well, God believed in him. It's a good comeback, but it also tells you something quite serious 
about worship, memory, and identity in this place. Years ago, I was taking a German uh, monastic abbot around the abbey, and he said, well, you know, it's very nice, but it, it's, just a, it's just a mausoleum, isn't it? It's like the Pantheon. But it's not like the Pantheon. It's not like a mausoleum. Because the first activity that goes on here is not burial, it's worship. And it's the burial of this extraordinary, diverse collection of people in this place of worship with its extremely complicated history, which begins to make sense of what the Christian gospel is trying to say here. Many of you will have visited Poets' Corner, which is there because Geoffrey Chaucer is buried there. And in the way that Newton gathers scientists and Purcell gathers musicians and Edward gathers kings, Chaucer gathers women and men of letters and learning. Now, Chaucer is there, not actually particularly because he is the father of the modern English language, but because he was our clerk of the works. So in between writing the tale of the wife of Bath and the pardoner's tale, he was kind of clearing out the, the drains and mending the roof. Uh, but it was Chaucer's burial here, followed by Edmund Spencer's burial here, and the presence of William Caxton's first printing shop just out the back, uh, which made this a mecca, if you'll forgive the rather confusing analogy, um, for uh, women and men of letters. All of these groups, science, music, literature, art, say something to us, we believe, about the wisdom of God in the world today. We can get so caught up, don't we know it, in the issues of the day uh, about which the church often speaks in an extremely confused, contradictory and irritating manner. What we're trying to say is something a bit more interesting than that to say that the wisdom of God is deeper, broader, more capacious than any of those issues. We have a stone to the founders of the Royal Ballet, not far um, from Poet's Corner. Um, and when that stone was unveiled, in the context of worship, we built a, a stage going down the choir area. Um, and on that stage were performed several dances. We had the orchestra of the Royal Ballet there as well. Um, and the dances included Satan's solo from the ballet Job. And one of the wags writing that service up afterwards for one of the newspapers commented on how the canons of Westminster sat there still watching Satan dance down the choir of Westminster Abbey. But there is something in this ability to bring events which otherwise would not be um, occasioned in church into right of the heart of the nation's foremost religious building, which I think says something about the kind of hope which is in the gospel. So I don't think this is a mausoleum. Somehow, I think it all belongs, and I think it tells one story. It is robustly a Christian story of creation, of fallenness, of redemption, of reconciliation and sanctification. It's also a national story with some very unattractive characters there, as well as the attractive it tells us that God's wisdom is much more interesting when we think about science, music, and art than when we get obsessed with issues of the day. There's a deep and complex truth that this story tells, this building tells, articulated from the grave of the unknown warrior at the far west, a victim of bloody violence, a victim of the failure of diplomacy, a victim of see people slagging it out in the old ways on the battlefields, this man at the west, to Edward at the east, 
promising us something about Christian hope and a Christian future. And Anglicanism is the current Christian tradition which holds all that together. Now, it's often said, you may think rightly or wrongly, that Anglicanism is a reasonable theological tradition. That is, that it takes human experience seriously, the human intellect seriously, and that it is, at its best, a capacious thing. But it is that capacious offering, I think, which holds all this together. I remember organising a service in 2010 for the victims of the Haiti earthquake. We were approached by a very, very small group of Haitians in the UK who wanted to do something uh, to pray for their country and to commemorate their dead. Um, Haiti had fallen off the public radar at that point, and this was a very small diaspora group. But through organising an extraordinary moving memorial service, we were able to raise the temperature again for Haiti in the UK. And it was as a result of that articulation of grief and hope that, for example, they were able to then move on to have meetings in Parliament. The Prince of Wales hosted something for um, Haitians in the UK. And suddenly Haiti was back on the map. So the Abbey broadens the theological context, but it also offers a kind of staging post for those who otherwise would not be noticed. It's not just about the great and the good. It's not just about the big national narratives. It's about trying to articulate something much richer than that. And in this sense, it's a theatre where the cast appears to be endless, and in many ways where there is nothing which can't be claimed as holy, or in other words, redeemed. And this is so even with some of our nation's most intractable conflict. On the south side of the Abbey's Lady Chapel is what I hold to be the most remarkable tomb in the Abbey. You can see here an effigy of Queen Elizabeth I, resplendent in her royal robes, face, hands and pearls. You think it's any ordinary royal tomb until you look at the inscription at the bottom here. It says, partners in throne and grave, here we sleep, Elizabeth and Mary, sisters in hope of the resurrection. Now, any of you who know anything about Tudor history will know that Elizabeth and Mary were both daughters of Henry VIII. Elizabeth, the daughter of Queen Anne Boleyn, Mary, the daughter of Queen Catherine of Aragon. These were certainly people who at various points in their lives had the other one's life firmly in their sights. And here, they're buried together. Sorores in spe resurrectionis, sisters in hope of the resurrection. This tomb was built by James VI and I, Elizabeth's successor. And it is, in my view, impossible to think that he didn't know exactly what he was doing. Sisters in hope of the resurrection. If that's not an extraordinary rewriting, an extraordinary healing of history, a kind of cleansing of memory on the site of this extraordinary national Christian palimpsest, I don't know what is. This site is now used as a focus of prayer for the unity of the church, for the healing of Christian divisions. And it's certainly my prayer and my hope that the healing of humanity can somehow be glimpsed in the very, very many varied foci of this extraordinary place. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to the AKC podcast. If you have enjoyed this lecture, please click subscribe in your podcast app to receive future episodes. 
AKC, at the heart of King's thinking.